Thanks, Jules. Please keep your Bibles open there at Titus chapter 2. There's also an outline of my talk on the back of the handout you received when you came in if you want to follow along, if you want to take notes. That could be useful for you. Just get organised here. Let me pray one more time as we come to God's Word. Father, help me to speak your truth this morning. Lord, we pray that we'll uh, be convicted by the words of Titus 2, if uh, appropriate, that we might put our trust in Jesus, if our faith is already in Jesus, that we'll grow in Him and grow to live more like Him, empowered by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, chapter 2 of Titus is all about the good life. The good life, that's what we all want, isn't it? And it teaches us what the good life looks like. And then it gives us the motivation for living the good life. So if you're not already living the good life, well, in 30 minutes you will be. So there we go. That's good, isn't it? Glad you came this morning. Um, So what is the good life? That's a big question, isn't it? Maybe this is the good life. Has it got to do with wealth? Here's a family just about to get on their private jet, to jet off somewhere on holidays, as you do. Maybe just going to work for the day. I don't know. To school. Um, Is it kind of self-mastery or kind of conquering something or climbing that mountain or achieving that thing that you've always you know dreamed of achieving is it achievement is it success is that is that the good life is that when you know you're living the good life the commonwealth games are on at the moment maybe you've been enjoying that you're seeing lots of success um, are they living the good life has it got to do with holidays ah oh, there's a the good life relaxation is that living the good life when you go on holidays and you finally relax you don't have to work anymore you're then living the good life this is port douglas and for those of you who don't know I'm taking long service leave in three weeks' time. After the big day in weekend, I'll be taking long service leave for 10 weeks. And um, part of our holiday includes a trip to Port Douglas, which will be great. So then we'll be living the good life, won't we? No, we won't be. We will live in the good life. There's the good life right there. Last Sunday, we had lunch. After church, we all got together. We, we shared food. We encouraged one another in Christ. And it was a wonderful time that that's the good life, not wealth, not success, not holidays and relaxation, but trusting in Jesus and coming together with other people who trust in Jesus and encouraging one another onto that day. It was great to sing that song just before uh, this sermon as we, as we look forward to that day when we take our last breath and behold, behold the Lamb of God. Holidays are good, success is fine. But the good life is living in Christian community and encouraging one another. That's the good life. Now, why do I say that? Why is that the good life? Why is coming along to this hall in southwest Sydney, it doesn't seem very spectacular. Why does the Bible tell us, why is God telling us this morning, this, this is the good life? Why is a bunch of ordinary people fellowshipping in church the good life? Well, we're going to find out. So point one on your handouts is, ah, the good life. Paul spends 10 verses teaching us what the good life looks like. And in the last few verses of the chapter, uh, he explains why it's the good life and gives us the motivation uh, to live the good life. Look again at verse one. Remember, there are many, many people in Crete and Sydney, uh, for that matter, who don't know God and don't love God. They're merely living for themselves. And there are lots and lots of people in Crete and Sydney, for that matter, who are false teachers and they're trying to lead the people astray. So Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 1, you, Titus, and your elders, however, contrary to the false teachers, you 
must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Um, Titus and his elders need to know their Bibles. They need to know God's Word, know the truth, and then they need to teach it uh, to the churches, truthfully and faithfully. That's what God's given them to do. And that's what sound doctrine means. Doctrine's kind of a fancy word. It just means knowledge and understanding of the Bible, kind of an organised knowledge and understanding of the Bible is our doctrine. Uh, True Bible knowledge. Who Who remembers why knowing and teaching God's Word is so important from last week? Why is it important? Because the truth leads to godliness. Thank you. I was out on a limb there. Fletcher saved me. God's word, the truth, (coughs) excuse me, leads to godliness. It's God's word that changes people's hearts, including our own hearts. It changes people's minds and grows them in godliness. God's word is the content for the good life. This is where we find what the good life is and how to live it. If this is the content, God's Word, then the context for the good life is church, God's people gathered. That's what church is, God's people gathered. Teaching happens from here, the lectern, yes, and in kids' church and growth group, yes, but teaching also happens ad hoc, over lunch, over morning tea, when we spend time in each other's homes, when we get together and hang out, the big day in. Teaching happens with one another uh, ad hoc at all sorts of different times, not just the structured times. If you're a parent, you'll know most of your parenting and teaching is ad hoc. It's unstructured. There's times, to be sure, when you sit your kids down and you have a talk to them and you teach them something, but most of the time it's happening on the fly, isn't it, right? You're teaching them things on the fly when you're in the car, when you're having a conversation, when something happens and goes wrong, you go, well, what do we learn from this? Similarly... Christian teaching happens ad hoc as we encourage and exhort one another as we do life together. And that's what it's supposed to look like. So Paul writes in his letter to the Thessalonians, because we loved you so much, we're delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. The good life is Christians gathered doing life together and encouraging one another. The content is God's word, the gospel. The context is life together as Christians in all its shapes and forms. So it's important that we spend as much time together as we can, which is a challenge, but not not insurpassable. As followers of Jesus, we thrive most in relationship with one another. And this is Paul's teaching in verses 2 to 9. This is is just an assumption in the Bible, as you read through the letters, Paul's letters, that the Christians are gathered very regularly. And in the first century, it it was daily. They were gathered daily. Um, to hear from God's word and to encourage one another. So the assumption is that we're gathered on a very regular basis. Um, It would be a ridiculous notion to be a Christian on your own or to stay home with your spouse or family or whatever. That's a crazy notion for the Bible. Christians gather and they gather often. So then we've got these commands to different groups of people and Titus himself over these next eight verses. So we're going to move through them and there's the different groups outlined on your hand out. So the first group uh, is the older men. Now, who are older men? You know you're an older man when you're older than the men around you, okay? That makes sense. So you could be a 60-year-old man amongst 40-year-olds and you're an older man, but you could be a 25-year-old youth group leader, okay? And you're also an older man. Uh, So older men teach the younger men. 
The command is kind of, don't be a grumpy old man, but be godly. Look at verse 2. Titus, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. Temperate means your emotions are under control, no angry outbursts. Self-controlled means your actions and your words are under control, no verbal or physical outbursts out of nowhere. There's control over your emotions, there's control over your words and actions. This man is sound in faith, he knows his Bible, he's loving and he seeks to use his gifts and his abilities given to him by God for the benefit of those around him, whoever they are in his family or community or church. This is what older men are to do, to seek to serve with the gifts that they've been given and with the wisdom and the knowledge that they've acquired over the years, he serves rather than just being a grumpy old man who complains about everyone around him, and I couldn't help but think of these two, who, know, who, who recognises these two? And some don't. The Muppets are getting old now. Um, these are two grumpy old men in the Muppets who'd sit up on the balcony and they just heckle all the time and criticise and, you know, pick apart what was going on uh, all the time. Obviously, they made it humorous, um, but it's not humorous when it's real life and there's a grumpy old man in our midst who just wants to criticise what's going on rather than love and encourage others in his midst. So, older men, older women. Our next group that Paul instructs is the older women. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> Likewise, similarly to the older men, Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Who are the older women in our church? Hands up if you're... No, I'm just kidding. Hi, oh, Jolene, good on you. <laughs> uh, it's inappropriate in our culture, isn't it, to call a woman old. You don't do that. Um, you don't ask how old she is. Um, women in our culture are pressured by our culture to go to great lengths and great expense to look younger than they are. And I think that's a great shame. With age comes wisdom. With age come, should come respect, ought to come respect as we age. As we get older and look older, respect should increase from those who are younger. Now, we could just throw our hands in the air and say, respect, ha, in our culture, that ship has long sailed a long time ago. Respecting older people joke in our culture and largely you'd be right but that doesn't mean it needs to be so in here in our church we shape the culture in here we decide if we're going to be respectful to older people in here or not it's up to us we get to choose and the bible says we ought to respect and be respectable many moons ago before children in bible college lara and i went to africa and uh, we traveled around the serengeti and we had our own little guide in his in his land cruiser and it was great and we got talking to him and um, he said, oh, it's so funny, I have these Western people, Westerners in my truck, the Western women from Europe, America, Australia. And I say, oh, you look so young. And they go, oh, thank you so much. And that's so kind of you. And, he say, and then he laughs. Because in Africa, if you call a woman young, you say she looks young, you, you, you'll be insulting her. Because in African culture, they respect wisdom and with with years comes wisdom. Um, to tell a woman in that, her culture, according to him, to tell her, yeah, that she looks young is to call her immature, to say you look immature, which is insulting. 
they, they admire and adore wisdom that comes with age. So Paul's instructing right against this, this longing to look young, to, to be immature. Older women, he says, are to be reverent, worthy of respect, not to slander, not to drink to excess. Drunkenness is common in our culture amongst men and women. Drunkenness leads to loose lips, and perhaps that's why he's coupled this command about not to slander, not to drink too much together. Drinking can lead to loose lips, can lead to slander. Now, here's a question. What happens when a group of women come together? A lot of something happens every time. Talking, right? Lots of talking happens uh, when women come together. And that's a good thing, as long as it's not slander. If women come together and they slander and gossip, that's bad. And the Bible says don't do that, women. But if women come together and they talk and they teach and encourage, the Bible says that's great. So it's not the getting together and talking that's bad, it's what they're talking about that could be bad. Don't slander, don't drink to excess, come together and teach and encourage. Titus is taught to teach the older women. Now, very clearly from Titus 2, it's the responsibility it's the responsibility of the older women to teach the younger women in the church. It's the responsibility of the older women to teach the younger women in the church. So, younger women. Um, and it goes without saying that if the following qualities that younger women are supposed to example or be taught, sorry, if the following qualities are taught by the older women, then the older women need to model these qualities as well. Okay. Um, now, these two verses could be viewed as controversial in our current cultural context. That's a shame. But let's have a look at them and work out why they, they ought not to be controversial. Verse 4, um, <clears throat> Then they, the older women, <coughs> can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, bear in mind, the vast majority of women in the first century were married and sought to raise children. There wasn't really work available for women. There wasn't really support available for women if they weren't married. They needed the man and he needed the income to provide for her and, and the family. Having kids was a crowning achievement for a woman uh, in those days. And in my opinion, it still is a crowning achievement for a woman is childbearing. And we know, though, that it doesn't always work out for women and that can be challenging and that's life. That happens... Um, women may not find a husband, they may not be able to bear children, and that can be challenging, and we need to support and love those women. But there's a great um, celebration when a woman marries and bears children in this culture, and I think in ours too. And then there's a call to these women who are married with children to love their husbands and children. That's to place a priority of care over their, on their husbands and their children, a priority of care above all else. Um, not a neglect of everything else, but a priority of care over husbands and children. And they too, the younger women, are to be self-controlled and busy at home. Busy at home means not, don't work, it means on top of things at home. Home is under control, mostly. And I know <laughs> if you've got a baby, it doesn't feel like that, but it will again soon. I promise. And, you know, I just want to say to young mums, I know all the young mums in our church, and I think you're all fantastic and wonderful and doing a fantastic job 
um, of bearing your children. And it's massively challenging and you're doing really well. And if there's dishes in the sink and the laundry's not done, don't worry about it. Look after the baby. It's okay. That'll get done later. And if you need help, put your hand up. We'll come and help. I'll wash your dishes. Um, I get cold hands a lot. I've got cold hands right now, so I like washing dishes. Um, house needs to be under control. It just needs to be sorted, like just not neglected. Does that make sense? And, and that's going to be a team effort with a husband, of course. I couldn't help but wonder, you know, how common was it, and I don't know, but how common was it in the first century for men to be off at war and, or farmers? You know, farmers start very, very early, finish very, very late. They can't, they can't, largely can't, farmers can't do much around the, around the house because they've got so much else to do. Is that kind of leading into this, in our current context, you know, we work together, obviously, as husband and wife, but wives, mums, don't neglect the home, don't neglect the children, as none of you do, I'm well aware. Um, She's to be kind, not harsh, not critical. Not harsh, not critical, not to her husband, not to her kids. Um, again, Again, sleep deprivation makes us all, you know, unkind at times, that's cool. But largely, she seeks to be kind with her words to her husband uh, and to her children, and also kind with her words about her husband and about her children when they're absent from her, not gossiping, not slandering her husband or her kids either to her friends. She's to submit to her husband, subject herself to her husband, as is in, written in Ephesians 5 as well, and we need to be very careful here, obviously, when we talking about subjecting to our husbands, that's, you know, that's not a call to uh, tolerate abuse at all. Um, abuse is not okay, and the Bible certainly does not condone abuse. If there's abuse, uh, you, need to, you need to speak up and talk to, to me or the police or, or somebody and get, some, get the help that you need. This is not a subjection to abuse. This is subject yourself to your loving husband, who's the head of the wife, in the same way that Christ is the head of the church and gave himself up for her. She, subsect, she, she subjects herself to him, and he, in turn, is willing to die for her. He takes the lead, and he takes the responsibility, and he's, he's willing to do anything he can to love and care for and protect and cherish his wife. And when this happens, it's beautiful. When the husband's taking on the responsibility and loving his wife, and she's submitting to his loving lead, that is God's given design in action, and it's a beautiful thing. Why are these people called to live this way? Well, end of verse 5, so that no one will malign the word of God. Christian marriages and Christian homes, which exhibit a combination of sexual equality and complementarity, that is, you know, men and women are equally precious in God's sight, but not the same. They've got different roles and they've been made differently and they've been made to complement one another, to work together well, when husband, when man and woman come together in marriage, they too are a stronger force than what they would be if they were on their own, and that's God's beautiful design. When he takes the lead and she joyfully submits, that's a beautiful thing, and that represents God's good gospel to the world. When he shirks his duties and he's irresponsible and lazy and selfish and gaming and avoiding responsibility, as many men do, that's not God's gospel on display. When she tries to take the lead and bully him around and complain about him to her friends, um, we give the outside world good grounds to criticize Christians and to criticize God's word. 
and the word of God is maligned. Younger men, verse 6, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. That's it. How come the women get seven things they have to do and the men only, young men only get one? Why is that? You can multitask, that's right. <laughs> it's right here in the notes. <laughs> men can only do one thing at a time. Teach the men just one thing, because if it's two, you'll confuse them. <laughs> Paul said to Titus. It's not there in the notes. Though, sorry, I, know. Um, I think it's, it is that. They can only handle one thing at a time. But I also think it's, it's, a, it's a huge deal for young men, self-control. It's a, it's a, if they can conquer that then everything else will sort of fall in line behind. It's my understanding that the risk aversion part of the male brain isn't fully developed until age 30, whereas for a woman it's something like 18 uh, or 20. So he doesn't have that part of the brain that <laughs> tells him, that's dangerous, don't do that. Um, it probably explains why going to war seems fun and exciting when you're 18. Um, self-mastery in all its forms is required of the Lord and it's possible otherwise it wouldn't be required of the Lord self-mastery is required of the Lord young men and it's possible otherwise he wouldn't ask for you to do it God never asks us to do anything we can't do temper tongue ambition selfish ambition sexual urges all need to be submitted to the Lord. And prayer needs to be made for self-control, self-mastery, godliness. And God will bless young men with this self-control and self-mastery. If the young man of God seeks to lead the godly life, he must pray and submit himself to the Lord and be self-controlled. Strangely, I think, um, there's a word to Titus kind of in the midst of the word to Olders and youngers and, and slaves next. Um, so, Titus is instructed by Paul, again, and I'm going to be quick here because we kind of cover it in chapter 1, to be an example. Titus, the elders, the older men, the older women, are to be an example to all that. They're to live the good life that's been laid out before them uh, by God. Set an example in sound doctrine. Teach the truth. Know your Bible. Set an example in doing good uh, to others. Set an example in integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech. Take God's word seriously. Take godliness seriously in yourself and in your congregations, is, God, is Paul's instruction to Titus. Be serious about godliness. And when godliness isn't happening, take it seriously. Soundness of speech. Speak truthfully. Honestly, from God's word, think about what you're going to say before you say it. Live the good life. Why? Again, look at verse 8. So that those outside the church have no grounds to criticise the church and ultimately to criticise Jesus himself. Lastly, slaves. Slavery was common in the first century and not commonly a bad thing in the first century. Slave masters were often Christian. They lovingly provided um, protection and income uh, for people and their families. Often slaves would have an estate and their slave, slave masters would have an estate and their slaves would live in you know, comfortable accommodation with their families and, and work the property and it was, it was a beautiful thing. 
A slave carried the same rights as his master in relation to the outside world. So if you harmed a slave, it was like harming the master and the penalties applied uh, accordingly in the culture. To injure a slave was to injure his or her master. Now, the only similarity I can think of in today's culture is bond servants. Uh, people trying to gain citizenship in Australia are often bond servants. They need to work and they need to work here or there or wherever the government says. Uh, interestingly, GPs. This is still this interesting... Clem was a bond servant to the government for a while and had to work a certain amount of time in certain places as a GP. Are you still? Or is it... You're still? Wow. It's got to work a certain amount of time in certain amount of places um, as a GP. Now, on a global scale, slavery is terrible ex you know, exclusively. It's, it's bad, it's corrupt, it's abusive. And for that reason, we've got to be careful that we don't import a modern concept of slavery into the text uh, here in Titus chapter 2. And so the command to slaves is to be godly, to, to treat your owners, your owners with respect, to work hard as if working for the Lord, not to steal uh, that kind of thing. And that's good and right and makes sense in this context. So then at the end here, in verses 11 to 16, Paul gives um, the reason why living this way is the good life. I said 16, 15. Paul gives a reason why living this way is living the good life. Why is this the good life? Why is last Sunday lunch the good life? Why is right now, why is this the good life? Why is it not about wealth and happiness and holidays? Why is it about gospel-centred love and loving relationships? Um, as a general rule, sorry, um, look again at verse 11 for the answer. Verse 11, I'm going to put it on the screen because I've highlighted a couple of things. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Grace has already appeared, hasn't he? Grace came in the form of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago and came into the world. So verse 11, God most clearly and definitively demonstrated his grace through the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus, who came and he loved and he taught and he healed and he died for those who put their trust in him. And he rose again in glory, giving us great hope for the future. And this grace that our Lord... Um, put on display for us and gave to us, verse 12, teaches us and empowers us to say no to living as the world does and yes to living the godly life, the good life. God's power given to us by the Holy Spirit enables us to live godly lives. We can do this by God's power. And we practice godliness, we live the good life with all the motivation in the world, verse 13, because we know the same grace will appear again. Jesus will come again in glory and splendour and majesty and he will take those who've put their trust in him to be with him forevermore in glory. So knowing that this is our end as Christians, we live the good life, we live for him, we love like him because we know we're in him and where we're headed. This is our motivation 
for living the good life, for loving one another, for gathering, for making the effort to gather. I know some of you had barely a few hours sleep last night and you're still here and some of you are here early. Well done. We've been justified, sanctified, redeemed, reconciled, purified in order to do God's good work which he planned in advance for us to do. And if you don't know what all those big words mean, keep listening in uh, to the kids' spots over this term and you'll find out. God's grace transforms us to make us want to live and love like Jesus did and love one another as he has loved us. It's not about trying harder. It's about submitting your life to God, to knowing God's word and then putting it into practice. As we live for one another, we don't need to work it out for ourselves. Woohoo! It's given to us here, very clearly, spelled out uh, largely in chapter 2 of Titus. Pray, ask the Holy Spirit to work through you. Live for Christ who has come and who will come again. This is why we live the good life of loving fellowship and relationships. So, what does that mean for us today? Well, it means we all matter. You all matter a lot to one another. Don't come to church thinking, oh, it doesn't matter if I come or not. I'm not really needed or that important. Yes, you are. Everyone is. Everyone's needed and important. We all matter to one another a lot. When we gather and live the good life, loving one another, it transforms our church into more Christ-likeness. When you make the effort to come and love others, you change our church You make it more godly through the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Each little part, doing its little bit, week in, week out, as we come to church, as we gather, changes our church. That is God's promise. God's word spoken to one another on the lips of one another transforms one another and transforms us together as a church. You're all needed and you all matter to one another. You all have a contribution to make to this church. If you can't sing like John and me, that's okay. John can play the guitar. I can't do that either. If you can't teach kids church, that's okay. That's okay. We all have a contribution to make in loving one another and spurring one another on as we see the day approaching. Paul talks clearly about this in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, the body, each part working together to grow itself up. As we commit to Christ, commit to his word and then commit to one another. We must invest in one another and the fruit of our investment is godliness in a church that lives more like Christ and the fruit of godliness is people growing in Christ in our church and people coming to salvation in Christ from outside our church. That is the investment that we're making. Mick talked about investment in the big day in um, a few weeks back. I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. As we come to church, as we come to growth group, as we come to the big day in, it's it's not about giving up things, we're investing in, in, in our church and in one another and that leads to godliness and secondly you all matter to God even more than you matter to one another God loves you more than you can possibly imagine more than any mere human being ever could no matter how much you're loved by your loved ones by your mum no one can love you as much as God can he said he's one and only son who gave up his life for us to bring us into fellowship with the Father in heaven so that we might live this life of glory now and in the life to come. We matter to God. You matter to your church as well. 
So take note of his instruction to you and live for him today and forevermore. I'm going to wrap up here and I'd love you to grab your Bible, have a look again. Look over the passage, particularly at the section that matters to you or that's appropriate, applicable to you, older women, older men, younger women, younger men. Maybe you're both an older man and younger man, depending on the setting you're in. Maybe you're both an older woman, younger woman, depending on the setting uh, that you're in. In what ways do you need to pray that God will change you to be more like Jesus for the sake of your family and your church? Have a think about that right now. Have a little pray to yourself if you want. And in just a moment, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together.